Welcome to the Lover's Hole. We're crossing the line again, which means we're spending time delving into a special topic before we carry on with our circumnavigation. Ian, can you catch us up to where we were last time and what we're up to this time? Yeah, I'd love to, Mike. Um, last time, we were wishing you all happy holidays and happy new year. Um, we had shared a few thank yous in our Christmas special, and then we gave you the end of the letter of Mark. We shared Stephen's mad balloon dream. We shared Diana's tender care, and we shared the great payoff at the end of the book as the two of them were reunited and the whole cast went off singing happily ever after, thanks to the marriage of Figaro. And we went off singing Happily Ever After thanks to a really great chat with Jeff Hunt, the cover artist from Patrick O'Brien. So that was where we got to last time. And Mike, this week, like you said, we're taking a pause in our circumnavigation. We're digging into the field of leadership. We're going to look for leadership lessons from the canon. We're going to take advice from a special guest. We have historian, researcher, French revolutionary Navy expert, and get this, French Patrick O'Brien fan, Olivier Aranda, he's with us to talk a little bit about leadership and discipline in the historical navies. And we're also going to give you a little peek ahead at 2022, tell you what's coming up on the lover's hole today and as we move on from this Crossing the Line episode. We both hope that 2022 is going as well as can be expected for you. Um, you know, we recently crossed the equator, the halfway mark, if you will, in the canon. And, you know, it caused us to, to step back for a minute. You know, we started this podcast in the midst of this COVID epidemic, which we thought would have transformed into a new normal by this point. Yeah. But the epidemic has not passed as quickly as jail fever or the Spanish flu did for Jack and Stephen in the mm -hmm. canon. Now, and in tough times like these, good leadership is particularly important. So many of you have suggested that we talk about what we can learn about leadership from the canon, and that's what we're doing today. Good examples of good leadership there. Um, now, we've got many more examples than we'll have time to share today, and we thank you for the contributions you've made, and we'd love to just keep this dialogue going. So please share your favorite examples of leadership in the canon. Uh, you, know, you can reach us on facebook.com forward slash lovers hole or on Twitter at whole lovers. Now, one great leadership habit is thanking folks who get you where you've gotten to. And we want to thank all of you in advance for the examples you gave us for especially the recent Patreon supporters in our holiday gathering who stayed after on that call to talk through leadership examples. And very special thanks to Patreon supporter Philip Morehouse, who not only joined us at 8 Bells in the Middle Watch, that's right, 4 a.m. from Australia, but was kind enough to follow that episode up with a really phenomenal email of great leadership examples, which we'll be interspersing throughout this episode. A glass of wine with you, Philip. Bumpers. So, 
Yeah. Philip, in, in writing us about this crossing the line special, points out that leadership and management are infused in every book. It's a great theme of the series, but it's done with kind of a light touch. You know, every facet of leadership just arises naturally through circumstances, you know, whether we're talking about rank or charisma or knowledge, courage, team building, establishing core values, delegation, mentoring, and the list goes on and on. And, you know, Philip wondered, given how thoroughly O'Brien covers so many of the challenge and facets of leadership, if maybe O'Brien was reading a few books on leadership to provide him with some interesting yet natural points of tension in his plots. Ian, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's it's fascinating. And by the way, th- this is a chance for you and me, of course, Mike, to have a little busman's holiday and, and geek out <laughs> a little bit on leadership and management, because it's one of the things that, that you and I work on and teach. Um, I've got to say, it does look a lot like O'Brien knew a lot about leadership. Um, I, I'm doubtful, though, that he would have read any 20th century books on the subject. I have a feeling that his days were full reading um, Steele's Navy List and the, the Jane Austen and the Chronicles and all the rest of it and the, and the archives. Um, I do think, though, that he ends up getting to the same point. Um, as we might get to talk about either in this episode or later episodes, we, he looks like he might have based Jack Aubrey's character on one of a couple of different real-world people, uh, military hero types, you might say. Um, in the Dean King biography, it suggested that O'Brien's elder brother, Mike, might have been the inspiration for Jack Aubrey. Uh, Mike was in the Royal Australian Air Force in World War II. Um, it's possible, as written about by Nikolai Tolstoy in his biography, that there was a family friend, a man named Captain Jack Jones, who was a master of foxhounds close to where the O'Briens first lived in Wales. And of course, he had the inspiration of Cochrane and a bunch of other successful naval leaders of the Napoleonic era. And Mike, I think that the amalgam of the skills and attributes of all these great leaders is the same as the set of attitudes and behaviors that now get written about as attributes of leadership. So the source material that might have been around that might give you some idea of leadership, it really didn't start to get uh, researched and written about until a little bit later. It certainly wasn't an area of thought or teaching that would have been around in the minds of scholars and researchers in 1805. You wouldn't have gone to a library in Mahon and gone to the management section. Right. But that time wasn't far off. Thomas Carlyle and his great man theory. We're going to talk about that in just a few in a few moments. That was just a few decades away. Frederick Taylor and the idea of scientific management was coming just a couple of decades after that, even though I suspect that Frederick Taylor is someone that Jack Aubrey would have discounted as Whiggish to a pernicious degree. So maybe the Whiggish innovations in the Navy, in Britain anyway, and in society in general, serve to highlight what were in the early 1800s just the beginning of a whole new wave of ideas and schools of thought about how people should organize and conduct themselves. Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of the things that we, we see right off in Master and Commander when, you know, Jack crosses that line, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and gets his, you know, essentially his first command is that he learns very quickly how lonely it can be at the top. You know, he feels that tension release of the whole crew on the Sophie after he's come aboard for the first time and then step back off. And he realizes to himself that he's now them to the crew's us. And I think all of us go through that in terms of, you know, 
moving into management, moving into leadership. So, you know, Stephen even points this out. I think O'Brien uses Stephen to kind of reinforce it. O'Brien writes, Jack and Stephen paced up and down as though they were alone. Jack enveloped in the Olympian majesty of a captain and Stephen caught up within his aura. It was natural enough to Jack, who'd known this state of affairs since he was a child. That is, Jack had always been in the aura of a captain and other leaders. That's his first time in it. But for Stephen, it was the first time that he had met with it, and it gave him a not altogether disagreeable sensation of waking death. Either the absorbed, attentive men on the other side of the glass wall were all dead, mere phasmata, or he was... Though in that case, it was a strange little death, for although he was used to this sense of isolation of being a colorless shade in a silent private underworld, he now had a companion, an audible companion. So, you know, I think here we are in that hollowed quarter deck <laughs> reserved for the captain there and, and or, you know, the highest ranking officer. And I think it naturally, you know, for me anyways, you start to ask the question, how do you lead from this remove, from this distance, from this far remote Olympian platform? And it's, it's, it's set up as the first leadership challenge that Jack Aubrey encounters. Now, the, the prevailing attitude at the time, I think, was that leaders led and followers followed. And it would be easy to suppose, and some people did, that actually leadership was really just about the conduct of individual uh, leaders carrying people along with them. Nelson is quoted by another admiral known as Old Purchase as saying, there are three things which you are constantly to bear in mind. First, you must always implicitly obey orders without attempting to form any opinion of your own. And and he goes on some more. And this idea of innate authority and the, this idea of unquestioning obedience to orders was something that Jack railed against a little bit. And although he was enlightened for his time, um, he, he was still suspicious of captains that he thought might have any democratic tendencies. And Jack talks Stephen through the different styles of different captains, mentions darkly that some of them were even rumoured to consult with their gunroom officers before making decisions. And he really dislikes councils of war. He dislikes open-ended consultation with his subordinates. So there's something still a little bit old world about Jack. I think he's still pretty okay with this idea that leadership is about the person. And in the late 18th century Navy, that meant leadership being about the man who was the leader. Yeah. And and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, in the discussions with Philip, we talked about this great man theory of leadership that you talked to just a moment ago, Ian, and how, you know, kind of O'Brien seems to ascribe this to Jack. It's, it's, you know, it's Thomas Carlyle's work from about 1841. So it's about 30 years after Jack's timeline, but the phrase was absolutely in common use then here. You know, if you do a search on great man in the series, comes up quite frequently, you know, in reverse of the middle. So I was told by a great man at the Admiralty, you know, Nelson always often described as a great man. Um, and remember that time in the letter of Mark when, you know, Stephen's kind of talking about why in the world people are going out night after night in the rain and the squalls, you know, kind of practicing this cutting out. And Martin says to Stephen, perhaps you're so used to your friend, that is Jack, that you no longer see what a great man he is to the sailors. 
If he can leap and bound at night in the pouring rain, defying the elements, they would be ashamed not to do the same. Though I have seen some weep at the second assault or when they are desired to go through the cutlass exercise once more, I doubt they would do so much for anyone else. It's a quality some men possess. Wow. So Jack's got it, whatever the it is. I think, though, Mike, that from right the beginning of the canon, we are shown that this this it, this great man quality, isn't going to be enough, and we shouldn't take it for granted. And I think we see this really, really clearly when we get into the subject of punishment and discipline and the, the way that rules are enforced inside this kind of enclosed family of the naval community. This brings about discussions between Stephen and Jack, even early on in Master and Commander and throughout the canon, about corporal punishment and what its purpose might be and what misuses it might engender, and also what it meant for this social order of the Navy. And there was this sort of slightly old world definition of passing for a gentleman that some of the lieutenants came up against. And Jack, meanwhile, is not a fan of the idea of absolute authority as represented in what he calls a, a flogging ship or the actions of a flogging captain. Jack is all about creating a happy ship. He's all about not fomenting mutiny. And he's all about being careful in this balance between discipline and oppression and not taking his great man status, his leadership status for granted. So um, post-captain, for example, in post-captain and all the way through the canon, we hear about Jack's own previous experience as a foremast hand. It says here, as a disrated midshipman, he'd served before the mast in a discontented ship on the Cape Station, so he knew it from the other side. He had a great affection for the foremast jack, and if he did not know for certain what would go with the lower deck, he was at least quite sure what would not. So this little bit of Jack's backstory becomes important to him, him not being one of these absolute tyrannical commanders. And later on in the letter of Mark, read this piece about his role models. He says he resumed his steady to and fro, repeating Harvey, Fisher, Whitaker. This is him telling over the names of his uh, of his men. It was a captain's duty to know his men's names and something of their circumstances. And hitherto, he had found little difficulty even in the ship of the line with six or seven hundred aboard. So, Mike, rather than just being a tyrannical absolute leader, we're getting this portrait painted of Jack's quality as a good leader being about him being empathetic and being connected to the crew. Absolutely. And, and I mean, even, you know, in big and little ways, you know, the this idea that, you know, every time they're going into action, you know, Jack is kind of like, you know, have they all been fed yet? Or let's yeah. do that. Or, you know, the cutting out ships are pulling up. Oh, let me go walk down and talk to everybody else. Hey, did you get a good meal? You, you ready to go? And, and, it, he really takes us, even beginning early in his command, about appreciating that, you know, people have different capabilities, but they can all be useful. I mean, you know, he sums it up in, in Master and Commander when, you know, they're getting various and sundry people on board. And he's saying, you know, well, even that person, you know, has two good hands who can pull on a rope. And, you know, and that I, I just love Jack kind of, you know, it would be, I think, very tempted for many people once they've reached this kind of this haughty position to forget. And Jack, having served that time, does not forget. He's right there. And I think he also tries to pass this perspective that he has, this empathy that he has onto his officers, sometimes not entirely successfully. 
Um, there was an episode in the letter of Mark where Davidge, the lieutenant, um, showed that he wasn't really part of this picture yet. Silence there, cried Davidge, striking at a man's head with his speaking trumpet. Jack went below, and after a moment he sent for Davidge. Oh, Mr. Davidge, he said, I have told West and Mr. Bulkley, but I do not think I have mentioned it to you. There will be no starting in this ship, no damning of eyes or souls. There is no room for hard horse officers in a private man of war. Davidge would have replied, but a look at Jack's face checked his words. And there are some really lovely things in this moment here, Mike. First of all, by not tearing Davidge a new one on the deck, but going below and summoning him below, he's showing a bit of respect for Davidge and his position in the in the in the crew. And he's then modeling to him how he liked Davidge to conduct himself. He's being gentle, he's giving his feedback in private. He wants to point out the the negative behavior that he wants to avoid, what he calls hard horse tactics. And you know, emphasizes this is a, this is a choice that Davidge has. And Mike, it's it's a really great little piece of leadership, a great example of Jack being something like a role model. And before we get too carried away with the virtue of Jack and and his perfection in some way as a role model, we should remember as well that O'Brien shows us some uh, some negative role models as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you know, let me prove it by the uh, the exception here or. I, I, I think here, Jack is, is a bit of the exception because we get plenty of times throughout here where, you know, Jack's just demonstrated by the look on his face to Davidge that he knows about hard horse tactics and could demonstrate him if he had to, but he's not making that choice. Unlike folks like Lord Clonfort. I mean, we have actually in, in Mauritius command, almost a veritable smorgasbord of differences <laughs> in leadership here. You know, Clonfort, who is this? Um, vain, kind of uh, lacking self-confidence, really unable to work as a team, kind of more more this, you know, really inwardly directed, uh, very poor leadership compounded by, you know, personal problems of his own as well. Yeah. You know, he considers Jack a rival. And, you know, since, you know, listeners, if you've been with us up until now, we're, we're trying not to throw in any spoilers after where we are in the episode. But if you haven't read Marisha's Command, put your fingers in your ears for a second, that, you know, after Jack has a great victory, Clonford commits suicide, you know, yeah. just can't handle that this rival is getting some glory here. Um, and, and we have this fascinating thing. We see Jack in that book as a captain of a ship, uh, you know, like he's on the boat of seas, working to bring the crew together. He inherits all kinds of different men. You know, he's got English prisoners he takes aboard from this French ship that he's captured. He has, you know, a whole host of various and sundry characters. The Admiral foists a bunch of defenders upon him. So this, yeah. these people are about to be, you know, court-martialed. And he, and he has to get all of these, plus his old followers and the people that know him, has to bring them all together here. So he's doing that on his own ship, but then he assumes the role of Commodore. And now Jack is a leader of leaders, including this Lord Confort that we said, including a Captain Corbett, who is an absolute kind of epitome of a flogging captain, just absolutely abuses his men is kind of all show and flash. And, and in fact, kind of, you know, back to the, the rolling grenade under the cot of the Vietnam days, you know, it's suggested that he's, he's wounded by his own men later in fighting and, and dies in this fight. But so we've got these, um, and, and, you know, 
maybe capping it all off at a grand level is Admiral Bertie, who you was know, <laughs> just this vacillating, self-serving guy who you know kind of comes in at the end and snatches Jack's ultimate victory so that he, the Admiral, gets the credit. So we've got these guys and we have a few guys like Lieutenant Harry Keating who a little bit more kind of along Jack's line. So, you know, O'Brien, while telling a fabulous story, is really giving us, as you say, in these contrast effects. Yeah. And one of these big contrasts and one of these uh, flogging officer types is almost the undoing of Jack right at the beginning of the canon. Um, In post-captain, we have Lieutenant Parker of the Polycrest. He's another tyrant. Uh, The text says Jack also more than suspected that Parker's was the little discipline, the hazing discipline, that under Parker, uncontrolled, the Polycrest would be a flash ship, all paint outside and no order within, the cat in daily use, and the crew sullen, unwilling, and brutal, an unhappy ship, and an inefficient fighting machine. And although, by the way, spoiler, Parker gets some redemption in the end, thanks to Jack, which doesn't happen to all of our tyrant captains or tyrant Mm. officers, we do get this the, the the problem of Parker's poor leadership taking the polycrest to the point of let's call it an almost mutiny toward the end of post captain jack in really really great leadership counterexample puts the instigators and some of his best most loyal men in a boat together being pulled behind the ship and we talked about a lot this a lot i think in our episodes about post captain um this he gives this great speech as well to diffuse the unrest he says there's going to be no punishment he promises very even handed treatment even of the people who are suspected wrongdoers and really really insightful i think in the way that he handles that moment and the speech that he gives interestingly though that one bit of speechifying that comes up in the Russell Crowe movie is much more jingoistic, much more patriotic, but I think actually quite unlike Jack's public character to his sailors. As Jack in post-captain is heading off a mutiny, he has this tone of headlong momentum. He moves without pause from reminding the men of where they are and the penalty for mutiny, reminding them of their positive attributes, their bravery, and he goes straight into his plan of action and that great action scene. That's the culmination of post-captain. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't appeal to their loyalty. He just makes a personal promise and asks them to follow him. And that's a really great hoorah moment for Jack and his leadership. I love the way that he has sort of undone this mutiny. And and it kind of of reflects something that we know about Jack, leadership, O'Brien, and the real cause of mutinies, at least, and, and something we talked with Olivia about as well. Yeah, indeed. We will come to Olivia in just a second. Um, There was some really nice other material about um, mutiny and its causes that came out later on in the canon as well. When we got to the far side of the world, and I think that was when we had surprises mixing with the defenders, some, some former mutineers, Jack had a very kind of equitable way of handling it. The text says he reached the surprise in a more sanguine mood put a pin in sanguine we're going to come back to sanguine as a leadership character later on um far more inclined to look cheerfully upon the prospect of admitting a score of mutineers into his ship pullings and mowat accepted the situation philosophically too for although most of the pressed hands they had known had been pretty decent upon the whole the quota system sometimes resembled an emptying of the inland jails and on occasion they had had to deal with some very sinful characters indeed and here's a great moment for one of the very great 
real world leadership figures that we can admire, Collingwood, Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, used to say that a mutiny was always the fault of the captain or the officers. And this is Jack reporting this. So perhaps, he says, we shall find them as innocent as so many lambs unhung and merely maligned. So Jack's got this attribute of being very even-handed, of not taking mutiny personally, I think. He's he's quite low ego about the way he handles mutiny. He sees it as um, a job of his to take care of the whole ship and the whole crew, not his being his job to kind of defend his status and defend his his innate absolute authority. Um, he goes on and talks about other causes of mutiny. In Master and Commander, way back at the beginning of the canon, he says, mutinies always happen in ships where the discipline is either too lax or too severe. And in the reverse of the medal, we hear about this Captain Piggott. The evening before the mutiny, the crew were reefing topsails. He, Piggott, roared out that the last man off the mizzen topsail yard was to be flogged. Piggott's floggings were so dreaded that the two hands farthest out at the weather and lee earrings on the yardarm itself leapt over the inner men to reach the backstays or shrouds, their downward path, missed their hold and fell to the quarter deck. When Piggott was told by those who picked them up that they were dead, he replied, throw the lubbers overboard. Mm. So what, what are we getting from all of this? Leaders are those who can show empathy for their followers, who see their role as being more than just giving orders and expecting compliance. Breakdowns in discipline are a failure of leadership, not a failure of followership. And might, maybe this time, late 18th, early 19th century, was an era then when the idea of natural discipline and innate authority was being eroded and eroded in society, certainly in service life in, in at least some small ways. So it's going to be time for us to talk to a special guest. Why don't you listeners all go and grab yourselves a rum and a copy of The Rights of Man? And we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers whole. So welcome back. We were talking about discipline. We were talking about authority. And that means this is a great time for us to talk to our special guest, researcher and revolutionary Navy scholar, Olivier Aranda. It's our great pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Olivier Aranda. Olivier is a researcher and historical scholar at the Sorbonne. Um, Olivier studies the naval history from the French perspective of the era of the French Revolution. And uh, Olivier, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be with both of you today to speak about these naval matters. I was fascinated the fact that you know, you're a Patrick O'Brien fan. I would yeah, love to know I a little am. bit about, you know, how did you discover this, you know, these books and, you know, what makes them interesting from, you know, from your perspective? Well, I discovered it uh, because, uh, to be blunt, my mother offered me to <laughs> this. Oh, really? God bless your mother. <laughs> my mother offered me the first, uh, the first book, uh, so I thank her. And uh, it was really... Um, what is striking, because I was very young, I was in middle school, so uh, wow. I was a, a kind of a nerd, as you know, I was obsessed with books already, and um, what struck me is, it's a, as a Frenchman, you set foot on a completely different world, because th these things are not at all known. Um, of course, the naval world, but also 
the Anglo-Saxon world because mm. uh, you know to to some to Frenchmen especially when when they are young well, like I was when I, I discovered the books uh, you know. I don't want to shock anybody, but the differences between an Englishman, a Scotman, an Irishman, a Welshman, uh, it's not really uh, that simple when you're young. And it was a, a discovery, and it was a, really, it was a discovery of a naval world, but also a discovery of Britain. Right. And uh, I think my, my, my love to, for British things started like that, because... Uh, Everything, uh, as you know, everything in Patrick O'Brien novels is interesting. Not only, it's not one of these books when you skip the parts uh, which are uh, on land and you, you want to, to advance to, uh, to, the, to the, the naval combats or, or whatever. You, you enjoy, you really enjoy the parts when he's, uh, he's in uh, Britain or elsewhere. And, uh, of course, for example, the... The moment of a piece of Amiens is, in my in my opinion, it's maybe one of the best books, and uh, we, and uh, they are quite far from uh, from the sea. So I discovered it by chance, but uh, 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 I've been grateful for that <laughs> for, for the rest of my life. But maybe it's just one last thing about that. It's. Uh, um, I discovered it by chance because in France you you do not you do not bump on these books uh, uh, via uh, of course school or or things like that. Uh, so so you have to rely on uh, on chance and um, because of the community of uh, of uh, of seamen really in France is quite small. But uh, when you dig a bit, you think, you, you understand that there are some people who are interested. I did a podcast from one of the, maybe the biggest uh, podcast about history in France, which is called uh, Parole d'Histoire, Talking History. And uh, we talk about the movie and the books. And uh, I think it was uh, quite a success. <laughs> nice. So... Just one of the little pieces of humor um, in the Patrick O'Brien books is the way that he describes, first of all, language mistakes that Jack Aubrey makes yep. in English. And right. also in one or two of the books, he may, he has good fun with the way that French people speak English. And he kind of has this this comedy thing with Captain Christy Pallier trying to speak English to his colleague. How, how does he do the jokes in French? And does he manage to make it still funny for French people? Because humor is a very specific thing. I think uh, humor is absolutely central to uh, Patrick O'Brien's work. So, uh, and uh, I think as I have as I have read these books when I was young, of course I've read it in French. So, and they are very well translated, and that's important because, of course, these jokes uh, they work perfectly in French, and it's really, really uh, something marvelous because. Um, First thing is it's really uh, striking and surprising to be seen, of course, as a Frenchman, as the uh, the opponent. Uh, when I was doing, I, I was thinking, but we are the good guys. So, <laughs> what, <laughs> what? Why are we talking about uh, 
tyranny on things. The, the British monarch, of course, is a, is a, the tyrant. Uh, I, I've read it in the in the Marseillaise, so it must be true. <laughs> so so uh, it was really striking and um, and thoughtful, really, because uh, as a as a young man, again, it makes think, it makes you think about uh, well. It's really plain to 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 say, but um, to 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 think about uh, the differences in culture, so uh, to make yourself at the place of someone else. So, so it's uh, it's really important, and uh, it the humor works. Uh, one of my best uh, <laughs> moments is uh, when uh, during the piece of Amiens, uh, I, I don't know which uh, which book it is. Uh, um, Jack and Stephen, of course, they they, they have dinner with. Uh, with uh, with Christy Palier, and he, he he prepares he he says to his um, to his valet to prepare the, a very simple meal made of uh, I think f- f- ten dishes or something, right. which is hilarious because uh, it's 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 really of course it's, uh, it plays on the on the on the, the topic of the French food, but one thing which is really important is that as you know. Uh, Patrick O'Brien at no point disrespects the French or no. the or any culture. No, not the French, but not any culture. It, it's very, it's very striking, really. And uh, um, I don't know. Maybe it's not interesting to talk about this thing, but uh, you, you tell me um, what an effect, an unexpected effect of this uh, this point of view is. That I have some difficulty uh, getting in over British naval uh, fiction because yeah. uh, something like Forrester—it's it's not a, it's not a jingoistic or, or, or something like that—but still there is that something that is not present in Patrick O'Brien is this kind of focus on only the French, uh, the British point of view. And uh, so it's it's really important. And I thought uh, when I was young and didn't know really this history, and I thought, uh, well, the French are doing good. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, as you know, Patrick O'Brien stresses really the the one or two vic- French victories, yeah. uh, as you know, uh, Algeciras in the first in the first books, uh, La Bataille de Grand Port in the in. Um, uh, Mauritius, yeah, 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 in a, uh, what we call the island of La Réunion. So, and uh, when I was reading it, I felt, oh, it's it's really, it's really balanced. And then I studied history, and I <laughs> I understood that it was it is the uh, there are the, the only <laughs> French victories, so there is none other. So, uh, really, Patrick O'Brien uh, uh, decided to to give. Um, uh, it's not uh, it's not at all. Not, not in the in the slightest, and it's I think it's very important a jingoistic book, and uh, okay, we are not even told of uh, Trafalgar. We are, we are uh, as you know, um, Jack Aubrey was on uh, in at the Battle of the Nile, but uh, it is not uh, it is not done. We as you maybe you know, but in France uh, we call it Aboukir, and yeah. it's quite not a, a good souvenir. But, <laughs> but so I think it's uh, it's an important point. Yeah. So and he ha- yes you're right he has this very uh, a very open very liberal approach mm-hmm. to all of the cultures. I'm not sure about the Scottish though. I think he makes fun of yeah. Scottish people more <laughs> than he makes fun of other nationalities. But we'll put that to one side. So and Olivier, with 
particularly interested this week as well in talking about leadership and talking about discipline. So, well, let's start out with a very general question. Tell us any, uh, what, what important differences do you see in the way that discipline was organized in a Navy like the French, especially in the revolutionary time? compared to what we know about the, the British and American navies. Yeah. But first thing first, uh, I think the way Patrick O'Brien describes these topics in his books is excellent. Uh, it's not perfect, of course, um, but it really catches the spirit of what's uh, a, a working, uh, a working um, crew of a, of a man of war. Um, you have this uh, strange, very strange reality, 300 men uh, together in a very s uh, small space. Uh, the, what is striking in the, the books is how well is put the separation between men and officers. Of course, they respect each other. They, uh, they have a relation, but then they are not part of the same world. And what is striking is um, of course, O'Brien spares us, he, he spares us the worst of life at sea, for, uh, for example. Uh, there are some gritty moments, but uh, for example, something really bad like sexual uh, assaults uh, at sea, we are spared. But, uh, so one could think, okay, that's, uh, that's not as realistic as it can be. Uh, for example, the relationship between Aubrey and his men, Stephen and the, and the men, Maybe it's a bit um, overjoyous. Maybe it's not that uh, good. I do not agree. I think, I think, it is quite a, bit, a good picture. For example, in 1789, uh, during the first French Assembly, the Assemblée Constituante, there is a kind of a parliamentary discussion about this, and uh, an MP uh, states that one must remember that. Officers and men, they are from very different social backgrounds, but they share a job. They are both, uh, the officer and the man, they are both seamen. And that's a solidarity. And it's, it's shown really excellently in O'Brien's novel. It's not, it's not a myth, really. There is this, uh, there are, they exist, these jokes about landmen, this solidarity, and it's striking. Maybe it's obvious to, to, to both of you, but in France, uh, uh, people they do not know this specificity of uh, the novel uh, way of living. So to answer uh, the question about the differences uh, between uh, uh, French and, uh, and British navies and French and American navies, there are, during the revolutionary period, uh, which is my specialty and I, I, I'm writing my PhD about, about it, there are a lot, trust me, very a lot of uh, mutinies and insurrections. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it, it does not happen in the same way as uh, in the British uh, Navy, for example. Uh, of course, there is. Uh, for, uh, we all know the, the we all know the, the mutiny of the North and the uh, uh, 1796, if my uh, memory is good. So in France, it's quite different because. Uh, there is a kind, uh, the first thing is the French Republic is built on an insurrection. Uh, 
So right. how do you how do you maintain order? How do you uh, stop the the French people from rioting? As you as you know, they like it. Um, <laughs> uh, how do you stop the sailors from rioting when you are yourself? Your own regime is built on an insurrection. It takes a lot of pedagogy. And uh, the striking thing is that very, there are no bloodsheds in the French mutinies. Ah. So uh, there is some, a, permanent, uh, a permanent discussion, a permanent dealing uh, between the men and the officers. So the, the, as you know, the representatives, so the French commissioner sent by the, 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 the different French assemblies, they keep saying that, they keep saying, We are Frenchmen. We are against the, the evil British. <laughs> so uh, we have to, <laughs> we have to, we have to get together. And some uh, often it does not work. The the, the sailors keep uh, striking. They keep uh, not uh, doing what uh, they keep, uh, of course, uh, fleeing, uh, deserting. But. The, the, main, the main thing, and I, I will write this in my PG, it, there, there is no bloodshed. So uh, there is a kind of gentleman agreement that uh, when you, you are on a French ship, you can ask for uh, better food, you can ask for better wages or simply to get your wages paid. But um, there, most of the times it does not work. But the, the repression, the... the The, the pushback from the administration will not be uh, will not be very harsh, except for one moment, uh, the moment of the revolutionary uh, government, so 1794, uh, with Robespierre and his mates, because, uh, as you know, Robespierre is not alone, uh, say um, they, they want to take back their, uh, the, the authority on the, on the ships. And one time, there is an execution of... Uh, two sailors mutinying in Brest, and uh, it is the end of a, a string of mutinies. But uh, so that's one thing. And another thing is, I do not think that these uh, mutinies, but it's better to call them negotiations, really, have such an impact on the fighting spirit of the French Navy. Uh, It's the same thing about the British Navy. As you know, the scholars have shown that uh, during the, the Nord insurrection, the Nord mutinies, there was no, uh, it was not a social insurrection. It was not an anti-national insurrection. The British sailors said really clearly, if the French uh, go to sea, we, were, we, uh, we weigh anchor and we, we go to fight them. And um, so it's, uh, the same, it's uh, almost the same thing uh, in France. As we think about changes in discipline and changes in people's attitudes to naval power at this time. We get to talking about this, this famous painting in, in English. It's called the raft of the Medusa. Olivier, what's it, what's it called in French and what does it represent? It's called le radeau de la Méduse. So it's for a translation uh, word by word. And uh, it's, it is really a, a striking, uh, a striking painting. And it is very well known in France because it is kept in the Louvre. And uh, everybody gets to see it, and it's reproduced in every um, every books that is used to teach in the middle or high schools. So it's, it's really important in France, 
and it tells uh, the story of um, of the end of our period, which is uh, the restoration of the of the king of the king of France, uh, the Bourbon restoration, as we call it in France, and. Uh, what is very striking is it is a criticism. It is a, a heavy criticism of uh, the, the monarchical power because uh, it uh, it is um, the story of um, a, a naufrage. How do you say a sinking of a ship? And um, the officer, the commanding officer, the commanding officer was one of the people that had fled. Uh, France during the beginning of the revolution. So when the king gets back in 1815, he he, he gets back to this uh, to this these naval officers. So he he gives back the command uh, the command of the ship to uh, an emigre, uh, uh, a nobleman, a nobleman who has fled. Uh, France in 1789 or or later. So and it's a disaster. It's a disaster because of course this commanding officer has never has not uh, seen the sea. He has not uh, c- commanded a ship from uh, during 20 years. So uh, the result uh, is a. As you can think it, it's a disaster, and the the ship uh, sinks uh, at. Um, Somewhere, somewhere on the coast of Africa, uh, near actual uh, near Mauritania, uh, current Mauritania, and uh, so when uh, when this painting is made, it's a criticism of this uh, class of people, of this uh, political endeavor of getting back to the old regime, and uh, so that's why it is really well known in France. Besides, of course, uh, its uh, artistical value. And it's a very dramatic painting. I mean, we'll present an image on our social media. By the way, it's been used in the UK as an album cover, a very disrespectful album cover by a rock band called the Pogues. But that's another story. (laughs) Um, It's a very dramatic, very, very kind of almost romantic style painting. And it's, it's portraying something that's clearly meant to be seen as a real human catastrophe. Yeah, what's striking is the, uh, I don't know if it's the right English word, it's the construction of the painting, because you have despair and death at the bottom, yeah. you know, with these corpses and uh, this uh, this frightful sea, and yeah. on the top you have hope, hope and everything, yeah, everything is constructed to, um, you, you, you're looking, you're, you're looking, uh, from the bottom to the top, and in the end, when what you see last is this ship, this ship that is uh, maybe that will save the sailors of this raft. And what is striking there is, uh, and that is uh, even in France not well known. That there is a second dimension to this painting. It is the racial dimension because uh, one thing that is uh, seldom said in France is something which is obvious. It's the, the man on top of the raft is a black man, and that is uh, that, that's not uh, a detail. That, that is it's, it's really important, and it the, this painting is also a criticism 
of, um, as we say in French, la traite, the passing of, uh, the, of black people from Africa to uh, America. So, um, and this dimension was a bit overlooked during a, a, a long time because the man who served as a, a model, I don't know, um, to, to help, uh, to help the painter to, to draw his, uh, his characters was a black man living in France. And uh, it, so we are in the context of the new uh, slavery in France, because as you know, Napoleon, not one of his best deeds, uh, <laughs> did reenact uh, slavery in France. So we have this... It's a, it's a really political uh, it's a really political painting. You have this criticism of the ancient corp of officer. You have this criticism of um, um, the, the ships, uh, the slaving ships. So uh, different dimensions, and of course the artistical dimension, uh, which is striking, and uh, the idea that uh, of of course uh, the officers and the, especially the commanding officer were uh, under their, their task. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's really fascinating and uh, interesting as well to hear that it's, it's such an important part of what you, what you learn in, you know, about art and about culture in French, in French school as well. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, I, was, I was really uh, um, striked when you uh, asked me to talk about this painting because it's, uh, it's such classic in France. So um, uh, it's, it's the point of making these discussions. The references, of course, are very different <laughs> between, uh, between countries. And, and that is... Uh, I, I would like to know which painting, which part of naval uh, culture is... Uh, None of everybody in Britain or in America, and not in France. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> oh, what's it? I'll I'll tell you the two that come to my mind for British people, and Mike, tell us what you think from the American side. Off the top of my head, Olivier, I'd say there's a famous painting of the death of Nelson, yeah. where he is apparently saying "Kiss me, yeah. Hardy" in the uh, uh, in the orb. Yeah. I think is it the midshipman's berth on the Victory, which is a completely fanciful painting, but it's very famous. I think okay. probably. The most famous outside of the, um, uh, the 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 history of naval warfare, the most famous yeah. uh, iconographic picture is probably the, the Fighting Temeraire, which is Turner's yeah. painting of the old warship, the Temeraire, a, a, a captured French yeah. ship. This one uh, is also very well known in France, so I'm not yeah. surprised of, uh, of this one. But uh, I mean, it's, uh, of course, it's really, really, really striking. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Mike, how about for... Uh, Naval art in the U.S. I, I don't have the uh, you know the naval art history that you guys have. So the thing that comes to my mind, and 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 perhaps it says something about the U.S. Navy, is Washington crossing the Delaware. Yeah, you yeah. Know, which is kind yeah. of, you know, it's of the boat. a small boat, right? With with him standing there like that. But I'm sitting here thinking, going, you know, as far as you know, things that would jump to front of mind, except for a naval enthusiast, it's probably that one. Yeah. So these were obviously times when the life of the sea and ships were important to our cultures and they were associated with changes in power and revolution and um, and when naval technology was a representation of lots of what society could do. Wow. Olivier, you, we've talked a little bit about the sources. Um, there's also uh, there's a, is it a, a, a rebuilt or a restored French naval ship of the era as well. 
Yeah, yeah. It's the Hermion because I've painted to you a grim portrait of naval matters in France, but it's not completely true. During the last two or three decades, we have seen a pushback. We have a full we have a full minister of the sea in France. I don't know. It's, so, because as you know, maybe some listeners do not know it. In France, Cocorico, we have the second uh, biggest EEZ uh, in um, in the world. So, uh, people, the people in government are trying to push this advantage, and you have to look back at history to, to build momentum about the navy, about the sea in France. So, uh, three decades ago, there was this project of creating a new frigate, a replica of a frigate. Of course, it shows well. <laughs> they do not show a, a frigate. Uh, uh, taken by the British, and trust me, there are plenty of them. <laughs> uh, but they, co- they chose, of course, the frigate that brought Lafayette to the United States, and uh, it's uh, and really the ship is marvelous because why? Not only because it's beautiful, because it really at, has been constructed to get to sea, to to navigate. Yeah. And you have sometimes some replica or some ships that keep in keep in port all the time. The, the Armion, and I've discussed this uh, with a sailor on the Armion, uh, a guy completely uh, amazing. Really, the, the, the people on this ship are, are really uh, really extraordinary because uh, it's a way of life uh, that is uh, striking. And myself, I'm uh, as you know, uh, I. I navigate in books, but uh, I know little of <laughs> the actual sea. And it's really a beautiful, um, a beautiful ship because they have kept it. Uh, they have kept everything of, in the 18th century. So it has been built without modern naval techniques. So everything was done with, uh, I don't know the French, uh, the English translation, with your little axe and something like that. So one thing is the smell. When you board the, uh, you board, when you get on board this ship, you smell the, the tar, you smell the ropes, you smell um, the the oak and the pine, and really you are transported into the 18th century. It's really striking. So if you get the chance to visit it, it's in Rochefort. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it's really striking. Not of course, not of course as majestuous as the Victory, but still something to see. Wow. And they don't, uh, I've, uh, I've been invited to uh, this frigate uh, two years before because um, what people do not know is the fate of this frigate. Uh, okay, she has, a, she has a glorious past in the, um, the American uh, Revolution, but uh, how did it end? <laughs> of course, it's my fault. <laughs> it ends in the French Revolution because it's uh, it's simply it uh, it uh, it founded in uh, in 1793. Uh, um, but it's uh, really interesting because the naufrage, how do we say it? The founding uh, took place uh, a few leagues from the Vendée because the the ship was monitoring the the, the Vendean insurrection. So. It's really the Hermione, the replica, is the ambassador of the, Fran- of the naval things in France. Uh, when people think about uh, about the navy, they think uh, about the ancient navy. They think about the ship, and it's uh, really a great set, and uh, it has changed a uh, lot of things in the public perception of the navy in France. Fantastic. Well, I mean, it's really great to hear that. 
people are, de- you know, are dedicated to history and dedicated to reliving history can still you know, can bring it to life and have that impact. Olivia, I know you have looked at Jack Aubrey as, as sort of an example of the leadership in the Navy and, and, and just wondered if there's some key moments in your mind in the canon where, you know, how Jack leads uh, stand out and, and if they're realistic in terms of naval history. I think uh, most of the, of the, the big moments uh, of of maintaining discipline uh, are really realistic. Of course, what is uh, I'm thinking about one of the, of the the first books about the moment of the Boadicea. It's quite a bold choice by Patrick O'Brien to to show his characters in difficulty. Uh, because, uh, as you know, for example, in the Forester uh, uh, canon, uh, the, the character, uh, they move across uh, Europe, no problem, everything is good, and uh, Jaktar uh, is uh, always happy. So the, to choose to show uh, an unhappy crew is, is something. It is a, a choice, a bold choice. So, uh, and... The, the way he describes the discontentment of uh, the crew with these rolling uh, uh, shots, or uh, I don't know, we say mm-hmm. balls, uh, these rolling yeah, balls yeah. on the, the decks uh, of uh, at night during, uh, and the way that uh, Jack is really made unhappy by uh, this uh, this way of uh, leading a ship is, in my opinion, really realistic. And what's more. What is excellent is the end, because the way that he manages to end the unrest on board uh, via an attack, I think it is really realistic. Because as you know, as you know, uh, I'm uh, circling back to this uh, event of uh, the Nord and the uh, uh, mutiny. Uh, you, we know that, uh, of course, a way to, to keep together a crew is to to to, to to point, of course, to an enemy. Yeah. And the same thing can happen uh, in France. So uh, whenever there, there is disorder, one motto comes uh, uh, back uh, every time. Is of course, uh, you have a French captain or a French officer that says, it will all benefit to the English. And uh, uh, the, <laughs> of course, a French crew cannot accept that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it, is, it is really striking and uh, I think, you know, this moment when he orders Bonden to go to um, a, a, small, a small craft uh, because he divides his crew like this. I don't know if it's realistic, but in terms of literature, uh, it's really a, a great, great, a great moment, really. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And he's, he's, it's, he's taking a big risk as well at that yeah, moment. Right. Yeah. Um, but, and. <laughs> And it has a big effect on Bond and the rest of the crew. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, it's really striking because in the, in the way it's written, when he says the, the peak moment has passed. So it was just a moment when it, it's, a, it's a, in French, we say ça passe ou ça casse. So it breaks or it, uh, it goes on. Yeah. Uh, and it's really a, a wonderful moment. Maybe uh, maybe we could have had more of this because in the end, uh, it's not a critic because uh, I revere uh, Patrick O'Brien, so I wouldn't dare. But maybe we could have had more of uh, this uh, this way of uh, these mutinies. Uh, well, there is also, of course, the the, the, the problem of uh, women on board that uh, yeah. later in the in the canon. But uh, yeah. that's a completely different thing. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. And very often I get this impression that Patrick O'Brien is writing about the Navy, at least the British Navy as a family. Yeah. And and maybe also you might say about all all of the seafarers, because there are these connections with American sailors and also in a few cases with French sailors, like the the family of seamen. And I think there are some moments when he could get some more tension out of the family. It's really a striking uh, point, but... One critique that you could, that you one can make to this work, and it would be already the only one, <laughs> is that Patrick O'Brien is kind of uh, um, taken in the historiography of the the wars of the 18th century be, being, you know, respectful wars. Uh, in French, we say. Uh, guerre en dentelle. It means war in in a, in a good frock or something like that, uh, because uh, it's the idea that uh, if it was not there were no really bloodshed. The important thing is after uh, you know the, this motto of after every fight you invite the defeated officer and. Uh, and you people things keep, things get on and uh, everything is every everyone is happy and what's striking is also the the, the fact that sometimes uh, uh, Aubrey is taken by French uh, by French officers and then of course he's stuffed with French food but <laughs> this this point maybe it's a bit exaggerated because you have to keep in mind that uh, not uh, not about the officers but about the, the violence of the of the of warfare at sea. So it's not, it's really not a picnic. I'm not saying Patrick O'Brien describes it as uh, wonderful, but maybe it understates the, the, the grittiness of, uh, of naval warfare at sea. Yeah. 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 It's a really good point. Olivier, thank, thank you very much. This yes. has really been a fascinating Thanks conversation. We've re- really enjoyed it. Um, what's coming next for you? What's happening next in your researches and what's coming next in your academic life? Well, I'm. Uh, I, I have started to write my PhD, so it's kind of a, a big leap, a big leap forward for me. Okay. I, 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 well, I, I hope I manage, and I have. Um, I have a, in. A, uh, I will publish two articles that maybe uh, are of interest, especially uh, because they, they they embrace uh, the Atlantic world and not only uh, a French point of view. I will uh, publish um, an historiography of the French, uh, of naval matters during the revolution from the, from the British point of view. I'm not, uh, not the French. So maybe it would be of interest to see how the French see the British, <laughs> if you, if you follow me. Be fascinating. <laughs> and my main point, in fact, my main point is that the British historiography of the revolutionary naval wars has been during a very long time way better than the French one. Why? Because uh, because the French academic debate during decades and decades has been, as I as I told you, about who is the bad guy, not between the British and the French, who is the bad guy between monarchists and republicans right, right. in France. So uh, there was books and uh, counter books, if I might say, say uh, about, yes, oh, Robespierre uh, is a monster. No, he's a good guy. And uh, the Navy has been enlisted in this uh, fight about whether uh, it's a good thing. So, in fact, the historiographic school that had some... Um, a better overview uh, was the British one and the American one, of course. One of the, uh, I've read uh, an article really striking that says 
Mahan is primary, I don't know if I pronounce his name uh, well, uh, Alfred Tayer Mahan, uh, Alfred Tayer Mahan yeah. was primarily a, an, histori an historian of the French name. <laughs> because, and it's not untrue because he, he keeps uh, telling uh, the wrong way of uh, doing naval wars is fighting like France, but still he is speaking about France. So the, 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 better, the best scholars of the, the French uh, Navy and the The, the novel realities of the, the, the period have uh, been uh, British and American for a long time. Nowadays, uh, and I end my article by this slight criticism, uh, there, nowadays there's still a bit of a problem is the British scholars, for example, their work is excellent, but they tend to have a reluctance in really taking the time to understand the complexity of the revolution. Of the French Revolution, because of course it's complicated. Uh, even for French, uh, when you teach, I have done it. When you teach the French Revolution in French uh, high school, it's uh, a nightmare because it's of course uh, so complicated, but it's also very important. So, but the, some English-speaking scholars have a difficulty to 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 really dig deep in French in French uh, archives, speaking, of course, yeah. uh, because you have to speak French. Most yeah. of them do, uh, of course, but it's, it's a difficulty. And uh, in some works, even, for example, the, the works of uh, someone like, uh, it's not important, the names are not important. I've read some great uh, work, but in the middle, there is a huge mistake about the French Revolution. Something like mm. uh, not um, uh, considering Robespierre, for example, as an extremist. <laughs> May shock, it may shock some uh, British and American <laughs> listeners, but uh, Robespierre, <laughs> it, he's really not an extremist. In fact, uh, uh, there are plenty of people on the left of Robespierre. So, of course, uh, one uh, is entitled to an opinion. You can think uh, what you want of uh, these revolutionaries, but when you write history, you have to, to start from the reality, and the reality is that uh, Robespierre, in fact, was not so, uh, in the context, of course, of the French Revolution, was not... Uh, so much of uh, an extremist. So uh, that's uh, what well, uh, my, my article will be about. That. Wow. Nice. Fantastic. And if, if people want to follow you on social media, Olivier, how can they find you? They can find me on Twitter. Uh, my name is Olivier Aranda. I just have my name. And uh, I tend to, I will try to tweet um, maybe a bit more in English uh, because uh, really it's a very fascinating uh, community on Twitter. Uh, international community of uh, scholars and uh, mm, aficionados, if I could say, mm -hmm. uh, on naval, uh, about naval history. And it's really uh, a pleasure to exchange about uh, these, uh, these things, these matters. And uh, really, if you have any question about the French Navy of the Revolution, you can ask me on Twitter. I speak English a bit, as you can hear. So uh, oh. I, will, I will be able to answer and it would be my pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. Olivier, it's been great to have the time with you. We really appreciate you taking it and, and look forward to a continuing conversation as we work our way of through the canon. And best, best of luck. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I can't wait to be popping a, a, a cork with you, you know, or, or <laughs> as, as we would say in POD, have, having a glass of wine with you. Yeah. <laughs> both, both will do. Uh... <laughs> right, right. Fantastic. Thank you.
What a great time talking to you, Olivier. That yeah. interesting, these perspectives, the, uh, the British perspective of the French, the French perspective of the British, and those insights about, you know, mutinies, why and why not? I mean, you know, very consistent, I think, with uh, some of the examples that we find in O'Brien's book and, you know, really portrayed nicely there. Thank you so much. Yeah, great job. And we're going to continue our nerding out now. We're going to dig some more into other aspects of leadership. And having dealt with the subject of discipline and breakdowns of discipline, let's talk a little bit about the positive side. Let's talk about the things that leaders do to bring good performance and to bring success out of their teams. And I think there's a there's a lot in the canon for us to learn about mentoring, about how Jack brings good performance out of people by putting them in situations and letting them learn rather than simply directing them. And Mike, that you and I have thought about and taught and read books by people like Hersey and Blanchard and John Whitmore and Charles Handy. There's loads of 20th century teaching on leadership that says that leadership is about being able to elicit good performance without directing it and commanding it. We have this great example when a young midshipman, Lord Elphinstone, brings Awkward Davis up on a flogging charge. And Jack, once again, takes his officers into a private space for a bit of a corrective conversation here. And he very gently explains to Elvinstone that Davis is a special case. Jack says he is a little odd and he's always been allowed rather more leeway than the others. He was at sea long before you were born. And although he is not very good at stropping a block nor serving a cable, he has other seaman-like qualities that will no doubt occur to your mind. He is enormously strong for one thing. He is always the first to board, and he is a most terrifying sight on the enemy's deck. Mad bulls ain't in it. But I was forgetting, you have yet to see that kind of service. That is all that I have to say for the moment, Mr. Elphinstone. Good day to you. Pray give my steward a hail as you go by. So, <laughs> so a very nice bit of mentoring rather than directing of Elphinstone on the part of Jack. Yeah, and I and I, I love this because you know you see Jack doing this time and time again. He's mentoring. He's also kind of, if you will, uh, managing the situation to set people and 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 really the whole ship up for success. This is, you know, my bride is fanatical about this in natural horsemanship. You know, she's working with people and horses, saying, you know, what can I do to increase the odds of people being successful? So, you know, we're in this far side of the world. We've got, we've said before, you know, these mutinous defenders who've been kind of thrust upon Aubrey and the ship there, and things have gotten really tense. And Jack realizes that as they're flying, you know, they're under a big deadline here and they're flying across the ocean, that, wait a minute, we're about to cross the line. And I'm kind of just barely holding this all together. But as we cross the line, Hence the, you know, one of the names of our special here. You know, this is a day of great license. And Jack can just foresee things going really wrong. That in these classic ceremonies, there could be real violence amongst the crew. And then then, you know, all the everything is shot. Disciplines by the boards, you know, the happiness of the crew is gone. But what he does is, even though they're under this incredible pressure to make speed, on Saturday, Jack stops the ship. And he says, we're going to spend a day having the crew decorate the ship. You know, we need to be disguised. And this is the perfect time to do it. And I think everybody is scratching their heads going, what? You know, we, we can keep going. Why are we doing this now? And the reason becomes obvious when we get to the crossing the line ceremony the next day. Jack has delayed it from Saturday 
to Sunday. And O'Brien writes, a muted (laughs) ceremony, however, for most exceptionally, it took place on a Sunday, i.e. never happens on a Sunday, except by Jack's design here. On a Sunday when church was rigged, and even more exceptionally, it took place on a newly painted ship with all hands acutely aware of their best clothes on the one hand and of the wet paint. Badger Bag did indeed come aboard with his train, exchanging the customary greetings and witticisms with the captain of the ship and calling for those who had not crossed the equator before to redeem themselves or be shaved. Martin and the youngsters paid their forfeit, and the others, all of them former defenders, were brought to the tub. But there was not much zeal in the shaving. Again and again, Badger Bag's style was cramped by the cries of, Mind the paintwork, Joe! And his usual obscene merriment could not really flow free on a Sunday in the presence of a parson. You're talking about somebody setting things up for success here without... To your point, Ian, not commanding, not even necessarily mentoring, but just arranging the circumstances. I love that. Oh, it's great, isn't it? So we've got this great attribute of Jack carefully managing situations so that people are able to be successful without him needing to weigh in and be heavy-handed. I think there's also something about Jack setting the context for people and Jack understanding the world that they're in. Thank you once again, Philip. You reminded us of some of the writings of Max Dupree, American businessman and author who said the first job of a leader is to define reality. And actually, Jack does a really good job when he's at sea of balancing his assessment of the continually changing situation. The crew, the ship, the enemy, he's always realistic, but yet optimistic. And... Jack's showing, I think there, there, there are two of the four temperaments here that are at one in Jack. One is the, the temperament of being sanguine. He said very often that or O'Brien refers to Jack as being sanguine. Sanguine means being optimistic and, you know, looking ahead in a positive and optimistic way. Um, Jack is also, I think, phlegmatic. He's able to be kind of blunt and straightforward and unassuming as well. And this takes us into the world of the Stockdale Paradox. So here comes a quote from Admiral Jim Stockdale. Uh, Jim Stockdale was imprisoned in uh, the Hanoi Hilton, the prisoner of war camp in Vietnam, where he survived torture for eight years. And he was speaking to Jim Collins, author of the book, Good to Great. And Stockdale said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, that faith that you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So this is not about simplistic optimism. When Collins asked Stockdale who were the ones who died in this prison camp, he replied, the optimists. He explained that these blind or simplistic optimists kept believing that we'll be out by Christmas or Easter, Thanksgiving, and then they finally died of heartbreak. They didn't confront the most brutal facts of their reality. And the connection that we're making here is to Jack's optimism. It's not blind. It's not unreservedly sanguine he's phlegmatic as well he recognizes the reality of an iceberg pierced ship he recognizes the reality of being marooned he stays firm in his belief that they will survive but he doesn't sugarcoat it this attitude is really important to him and his crew and we heard from listener rob on facebook messenger that he's actually at his best when he's in these situations like when he was marooned other books as well and there are some spoilers potentially there that i won't go into he keeps up his morale he motivates the crew even when the situation appears hopeless and he doesn't ever completely hide the hopelessness of the situation from it. He finds another way. He keeps moving. He lifts their spirits, like the example where he's 
becalmed when he's hurrying to intercept the Spartan. Um, but he manages to put a positive light on it and use the time to get the ship ready rather than focusing on the setback. So Mike O'Brien earlier on talked about the, this attitude of being phlegmatic, being a little bit philosophic, and we might get more deeply into this here. What kind of philosophy are we talking about that underlies this, this really helpful attitude of Jack's? Well, it, it's fascinating. I'm watching sort of this resurgence of stoicism and stoic yeah. philosophy. And, and it's, you know, it goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. It goes back uh, deeply, but we're kind of seeing it today, not surprisingly, <laughs> in the midst of a plague. But even, you know, you mentioned Admiral James Stockdale, when his plane was shot down, you know, he's the guy who said, you know, he's now entering into the world of Epictetus. And this, you know, actually, my present to myself this year was a new book of daily stoic quotes. So, you know, the first, you know, first day, January 1, 2022, um, the quote here is, the chief task in life is simply this, to identify and separate matters so that I can say clearly to myself, which are externals not under my control and which have to do with the choices I actually control. Where then do I look for good and evil? Not to uncomfortable externals, but within myself to the choices that are my own. And I think, you know, this Epictetus that, that I, I believe, if I'm remembering right, a slave who was kind of yeah. one of the writers of Stoic philosophy is saying, like great leaders say today, it's fascinating to be, and you and I talk to a number of leaders and work with them in, in strategy and management consulting. And yeah. you, know, you ask people why they succeed, and they always point back to something they did or they and their teams did, what they made happen. You ask people about epic failures, things that really went wrong, and they point to things outside themselves as if to say, well, there's really nothing we can do about that. And Jack is not doing that here. Jack yeah. worries about the things that he can control and doesn't, you know, and works on those rather than talking about all the things that are set against him here. Yeah. Um, Thank goodness. Thank goodness Jack Aubrey had no Twitter and no doom scrolling. Ah. Right, right. Well put. <laughs> so besides, I think, being able to manage his own perspective on the world and, and project that to the rest of the crew. I think Jack as a leader is also great at selecting and building people to be in a team. A great leader understands the importance of getting the best players in their team. You'll notice here that sporting metaphors occur a lot in the language of leadership and the idea of teamwork, uh, st starting with coaching and player and extending on to other things as well. Jack goes to great lengths to put together good teams. We have the episode where he's building his new crew in Shelmiston just a few episodes ago. He's looking for the best of the best. And this is another echo of Jim Collins in Good to Great, who said, who comes before what? Getting the right people on the bus is more important than deciding where you're going. Crew selection, crew promotion, crew advancement are topics that exercise Jack a lot. They also bring Stephen into play. And I'm interested in this because so far this has been a bit of a character study of Jack. When we look at the moments of selecting and building a team, Stephen, Jack's trusted and particular friend, often jumps in with good results. That There are still mistakes. We have unwitting mistakes, like letting Mr. Hollum aboard out of pity in the far side of the world. And then those situations, we still get catastrophic results. But Stephen is often involved. For example, screening out pressed men on compassionate grounds. 
in the Ionian mission, he turns to this this guy who's this very unhealthy guy who's been pressed. He says, ah, you lift heavy weights. Here are the signs of an incipient hernia. I'm afraid we shall have to refuse you. It's not serious yet, but you are to drink very little ale or wine and no strong waters at all. You are to forswear tobacco, that nasty vice, and to be let blood three times a year. And we're all reading that, cheering on Stephen, not only for being a humanitarian towards this individual, but also for being a great helper of Jack in putting together a team that's going to be coherent, that's going to have some strength of purpose and some cohesion as they work together for Jack. Yeah. And, and, you know, he really takes this idea of building a team. He really takes this idea of seeing his people in who they are and, and you know, what they bring to the mission uh, to a further degree than I think many of the people who are like, look, I'm the captain, I'm, you know, I'm the, and you just go right on up, you know, all the people that Stephen talks about uh, that authority corrupt here. And so we've got even a, a, what seems like a small example, a couple of small examples in this letter of Mark. You know, uh, O'Brien writes that the Shelmerstonians, you know, as they're weighing anchor, begin to sing a shanty. And he, O'Brien says, which had never happened in her life as a kingship. That is the surprise. It never had a shanty sung there. Working songs not being countenanced in the Royal Navy. Pullings looked sharply at Jack, who shook his head and murmured, let them sing. And, it, you know, seems like a little example. But I think Jack has at least this grasp that says we're a different crew. We're on a different mission. This is not a Royal Navy ship. And so we're going to have to be open to do things a little bit differently. We're doing a slightly new and different thing. You know, on the one hand, he's going to be going after prizes. Not that he didn't as a Royal Navy ship, but, you know, these guys, these privateers are all about prizes. And they may not be very much about, you know, kind of the, the going at for just for glory. And Jack knows that he's going to have to do both. He needs his classic surprises, the men that have been with him forever. He needs these privateers men, and he needs them to blend together. And they each have to bring some of what they have there. So when, you know, he's built these crews, he's done all the things to do team building, which will, you know, is part of this talk about in a minute. But when he turns around and says, okay, you know, we've gone after these prizes and we've done really well. Now, Jack thinks in order to get back on the Navy list, we've got to do a cutting out and defeat somebody of our own size. Well, there's not a lot of prize money in that. There's some glory, but it might not be the thing the privateersmen go for. But Jack has built this crew to such a point by this point in little things, even like the shanties, that they're willing to go after this very dangerous thing because they're part of Jack's crew, part of this happy surprise ship here yeah and and there are other aspects of his work building that crew as well the way he combines the crews together for the great gun exercises the way he handles this incident with seth yes and building the building bringing the the sethians and all the other kind of sects and different religious groupings together he does a really really great job with team building so besides being great at pulling a team together, he's actually very uh, self-aware, very insightful at bringing together people who are, have complementary strengths to him. He's not threatened by people who kind of complement or even show into relief some of his weaknesses. He's delighted to have people around him who are better than him in some areas. The, the, the obvious example of this is Stephen. And he and Stephen are very different people. Right at the beginning of the whole story, they almost fell out. 
But he now turns to Stephen, this very, very different character from him, for advice and counsel. He values Stephen for the things that he knows and does better. He doesn't lord it over his friend or make fun of him in areas where he, Jack, is more skilled or more learned or more experienced. And he's happy to see, for example, that the master of the Sophie is a skilled navigator, skilled mathematician, and that makes up for Jack's own deficiencies in maths, albeit deficiencies that he's going to correct later on in the canon. And Mike, while we're thinking about Jack being supported as a leader by complementary characters, I think there are some very important complementary characters that we should think about for a moment. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, Ian. And, you know, in the interest of time, you know, let's just go straight to one that doesn't get as much airtime. But when we think about those who succeed in the canon, even when the odds are stacked against them, leaders who, if you will, have far less resources or positional power, but succeed nevertheless, I think we don't have to look any further than Sophie. Talk about a complimentary person that surrounds Jack that, you know, she oftentimes acts as Jack's compass. She's when Jack has to, you know, leave for debt and is gone for an extensive time in the midst of all his troubles at home. She's the one that, you know, consolidates the assets, holds down the property, you know, basically keeps their, if you will, empire, (laughs) albeit at that point, a small one, intact. And constantly, you know, Jack in writing these serial letters, I think is kind of testing and checking the world with Sophie in mind. So I, I love that. Yeah, Sophie is a leader. Ra ra ra, and, and yes. that blows a big that blows the biggest hole of all in the great man theory, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well put. And Jack's learning, I think, as well as as the canon goes on, we're going to see him in the Thirteen Gun yes. Salute, yes. thinking about his leadership style, thinking about what he's learned from his time in command of a private man of war, as he did in Letter of Mark. And the text says he had longed with all his being to be part of the Royal Navy again. And now his name was on the list. And at this moment, the familiar coat with its crown and anchored epaulets was over the back of the chair by the scuttle, ready for his dinner. And yet again and again, he found himself regretting the surprise. Not so much HMS surprise, but surprise as a letter of Mark sailing where she pleased and saw fit with a ship's company of picked hands, some of them very old friends indeed, all of them thorough-paced seamen. With such men, with such a status, and with such a second in command as Tom Pullings, there had been an easiness that could never be found in a king's ship. Nothing approaching a democracy, God forbid, but an atmosphere that made the regular navy seem formal, starched, severe, and in the article of pressing, downright cruel. The foremast hands were much too far removed from those in command. They were often very roughly treated by inferior officers, and one of the chief functions of the Marines, as we heard before, was to prevent mutiny or an occasion to put it down by force. So by the time we get into the second half of the canon, Mike, Jack is already looking back on his time as a private man of war, thinking, yeah, actually, I learned some things, and maybe this slightly more empowered, slightly more democratized version of authority in the Navy might have something to it. You know, it, it's interesting. And I think you're right. This idea of, you know, a hallmark of good leadership being that people follow you because they want to, not because they have to. Yeah. Almost kind of a radical libertarian idea. Now, is there anyone in the books, you know, who could relate to that, who maybe has that characteristic? Oh, Mike, th- th- this is this is a moment that I think is really important. We've been talking a lot about Jack. We've talked a little bit about Sophie, but we've got to pick up some leadership lessons from our other hero, Stephen Maturin. 
Um, so we have all this great Team Jack content. Stephen's role is different. He's not there as a leader in the military hierarchy, but he is there as a bit of a scholar and a thinker for Jack. And we get lots of connections in the books, I think, between um, Stephen and his observations on the functioning of the Navy and Stephen and his knowledge of Enlightenment and early 19th century philosophy, which Jack knows only instinctively, but without any real learning at all. Now, you can argue if you want to that there's nothing very significant in modern management thinking that isn't ultimately based on philosophy or on simple empiricism. And if we take some of these one at a time, I think there's one particular leadership lesson that Stephen has got covered that Jack doesn't. So this mentoring idea that we talked about in the first half of the show, the lesson is that if you choose to inquire and observe rather than dictate, you can be a better leader. Well, do you know what? That's Socrates. Socrates and the whole of the rest of his school taught us that sometimes we learn by observing and stepping back. And all the stuff on mentoring and the leader as coach, Jack clearly has a grasp of, even though he wouldn't label it as that. We've had this, the, the, the great men theory, and also the fact that sometimes duty and hierarchy and authority compel men to act. And Immanuel Kant talked about sacred duty. Um, Jack, I think, has got that covered. It's certainly the basis for most military models of leadership thinking. If you've read the books or seen the TED Talks by Norman Schwarzkopf and Stanley McChrystal, that's part of their context for thinking about leadership. And then, Mike, we've got your lesson about stoicism and calm, you know, to be if you seek to be virtuous and if you remain calm in the face of adversity, you can live a better life. That's the Stoics, led by Zeno and, of course, Epictetus. This underpins a lot of what we would now these days call resilience and emotional intelligence and ethical leadership. And again, look at the books and the TED Talks from Daniel Goleman, Brené Brown, the Dalai Lama. I don't think Jack can claim to be quite as enlightened as the Dalai Lama or Brené Brown. But I think this Stoicism is certainly thing that he's got covered. And then we've got a new idea in the early 19th century, which is that the job of the leader is to make work more efficient. And the ideas of the Enlightenment, of Descartes and Leibniz were certainly important here. This, this led to the empiricism that came out of the Industrial Revolution. People like Frederick Taylor and Henry Ford really took this into the world of time and motion and efficiency. This is the philosophy that I think Jack was actually suspicious of. He kind of denigrated this as Whiggish thinking, but it was certainly beginning to pervade big military organizations like the 19th century Royal Navy. And maybe by thinking about it philosophically, Stephen could have helped Jack out a little bit with this, even though Stephen, I think, would reject narrow utilitarianism. I think Stephen would reject the purpose of making warfare indiscriminately more efficient. But I think Jack could have learned a little bit. And then finally, let's talk about the lesson of Voltaire and Rousseau and Jefferson. And if you want to look at books and TED Talks from the 20th century, Bruce Tuckman, Abraham Maslow, John Cotter, Daniel Pink, Simon Sinek. Humans care about how they're governed. Humans prefer to be governed in a way that represents their wishes. Humans prefer to work in a way that helps them attain or secure freedom. And this is this whole democratizing, somewhat liberalizing trend that we've seen. We've seen it in management and leadership thinking, especially since World War II. I think, Mike, this is very close to being one of O'Brien's personal points of view, as opposed to being one of the points that he admires but doesn't espouse deeply. Right. And therefore, I'm interested in this because this point of view of um, democratizing and liberalizing leadership, it certainly comes up in the conversations that Jack has with Stephen Maturin. And Stephen is Jack's scholar 
on the idea of liberty. Stephen is often referred to by others in the books as a friend to liberty. And it's not a leadership or a management lesson in the pure sense. But I think if there's anything that O'Brien is trying to teach us about leadership, it might be this, that we should be suspicious of unowned authority and that we should look for chances to make people more free rather rather than less free. Um, There's a great quote, a couple of great quotes in Master and Commander. Stephen says, I have nothing to do with nations or nationalism. The only feelings I have for what they are are for men as individuals. That's in his conversation, I think, with uh, Lieutenant Dillon. And Stephen remarks about how cheerfulness goes, gaiety of my natural free-springing joy. Authority is its great enemy. The assumption of authority is an, uh, an antidote to joy. And he gets talking to Jack as well in The Fortune of War about the nature of governance. He says, man is a deeply illogical being and so must be ruled illogically. And he goes on to talk about utilitarian logic and the case for building cathedrals and finding piety, even in the context of a, a royal dictator, a king or a queen. So there's some great philosophy. And Stephen represents that, I think. And he really completes the leadership picture for me on top of the great things that we've learned from Jack's experience and Jack's overcoming of some of the counterexamples that we've talked about. Well, and, and I think this stuff, you know, in, you've done such a nice job of bringing this together. And it makes me think back to some of my earlier days when you would teach me about some of this as we used to grab a West Wing episode after <laughs> working with clients for the day. And, you know, you had that great scene of Josh and Donna, basically philosophy and how it plays into leadership in good ways and in kind of pop ways today. I don't know if we we can put that out on socials for everybody. That is just a fabulous clip. Absolutely. Look out for Josh and Donna do philosophy. We'll dig out a little West Wing connection for you there. So Mike, we've learned a lot from bless them, Jack and Stephen and from Sophie. We've learned about building a team. We've learned about being empathetic. We've learned about understanding reality. We've learned about understanding the power of setting people a little free and empowering them and giving them some some uh, some autonomy you know and and a merit versus authority without Absolutely. merit right and it's it's been lots of fun mike i've really enjoyed geeking out so thank you i think to the listeners for letting you and me indulge ourselves it's it's been fun it's been fun well and and we encourage you to indulge yourselves you know we've missed so many references here please jump in and you know let's keep the conversation going on facebook on our patreon platform on twitter here and those platforms are vitally important to us because it's also where we learn from you what you'd like to see next and I think we've made this announcement once before, but we want to just confirm this. You know, so many of you have asked us to go back and give the first book, Master and Commander, if you will, the director's cut treatment. And that's just what we're going to be doing starting next week. So please join us for that Master and Commander, because I I hope that, like me, Ian, I don't know, how about you, you know, what would you say to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Well, my I should like it of all things.
Admiral Jim Stockdale, who died in the Hanoi Hilton in this terrible oh, prisoner no, no. camp. Wait a minute. He didn't die. He did not. He no, no. He, he was, he was he, in prison. He survived it. Yeah, who survived. Right, right. God, I oh, don't know. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> well, that's a spoiler.